Good morning. Our reading this third Advent Sunday is taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too 
may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. But when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Welcome to Trinity Heights Church on this third Sunday of Advent. It's that cozy time of year again. We bundle up, drink hot cocoa, sing carols like O Little Town of Bethlehem, which we actually will be singing just after the sermon. Uh, Sarah Beth and the band will be leading us in O Little Town of Bethlehem. And on top of that, we tell the story of the three wise men come to pay their respects to the baby Jesus the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloth, cozy, and lying in a manger. Growing up in South Africa, where uh, my sister and I grew up, this was a time of year that was always the opposite of cozy. Being in the southern hemisphere, this was the hottest and most humid season, and yet I remember my dad, who had grown up in the snowy Midwest, doing everything he could to try to reclaim the coziness that he had grown up with. He'd be putting up Christmas lights, Uh, sweating through his shirt in the 100-degree weather, blasting Christmas carols on repeat and making hot chocolate, even though the last thing that anyone wanted to drink was something hot. Of course, the reason we were in Africa in the first place uh, was because my parents had moved our family from Portland, Oregon, to KwaZulu-Natal to work with and provide support to the Zulu and Xhosa tribes ravished by the AIDS epidemic and recovering from the systematic oppression of apartheid. And so growing up, I always had this strange picture of Christmas playing out in front of me. My dad and mom working hard to make it cozy for friends and family and the community around us, while also working with that exact same community to hold back a tide of grief, poverty, and injustice. Because I think the coziness of Christmas is cultural and relative and very hard to sustain in the face of suffering and hardship. And yet there's something gorgeous about this time of year and something beautiful about what often feel like our feeble attempts to make it special as we work to foster community and show love and generosity to those around us. Because I think it's important that we understand that Christmas has always been about big picture things, zoomed out perspectives, less about me, 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 
and more about us. And thank you, Stephen, for doing the reading this morning in Matthew chapter 2, the account of the birth of Christ. When Stephen approached me a while back about preaching this Sunday, he said, so yeah, I'd like you to preach on peace. You know, the whole idea of peace on earth. And I said, sure, no problem. Uh, What Christmas story do you think I should talk about? And he said, well, maybe you could focus on the birth of Jesus in Matthew. You know, the one where Herod kills all the babies. You know, peace. And then Stephen said, you know, maybe you could emphasize that the reason Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem in the first place was because the Ro- there was the Roman census, which really was a way to just force and coerce the entire Roman Empire world and, and Roman world to kneel before Caesar and pay their taxes or else. Or else what? Or else be crucified along with the thousands of other zealots and political dissidents whose bodies littered the countryside as a warning to anyone who might dare to refuse to bend the knee to the Roman Empire. So yeah, you know, peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's amazing, isn't it, how we read these Christmas stories like the birth of Jesus and the visitation of the Magi and completely forget the context. We hear these stories time and time again, Christmas after Christmas, and we find ourselves drifting towards the comforts of the manger, the nativity scene, the baby Jesus cooing softly, the docile animals, the Magi presenting their solemn gifts, and we find ourselves lulled into a kind of comfortable sleepiness, a cozy version of the story that's about Jesus to be sure, but it's also somehow more about me and my feelings. Rabbis and Eastern biblical scholars call this the lullaby effect. It's what happens when we've heard a story so many times that it loses its meaning, and we no longer feel the collective weight of it. It doesn't bind us together as a community anymore, but rather we see it as having been written for me. And so we're lulled to sleep by the repetition and can't seem to rouse ourselves to grasp what's actually being said. And of course, that's what's actually being said in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ isn't quite so cozy. It's not as cozy as we might want it to be. It's not a story that's just about me and the birth of my personal Savior. And I'm not saying that this story can't function on that personal level. Of course it can. But it's also much, much bigger than that. Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus is supposed to to function more like a vast epic, giving us a sweeping view of the collective future of humanity. It's a story less about me and my private spirituality, and it's more about life together. It's a story written for us. Because if we allow ourselves to lift our gaze from the manger and the magi, even for a second, we come face to face with the violence and oppression of empire. And specifically in Matthew's account, this violence and oppression comes in the form of none other than King Herod. Growing up in church and going to Sunday school, I always remember feeling that Herod was depicted as a kind of glossed-over dictator, an evil idiot hell-bent on self-preservation but easily outsmarted, a one-dimensional supervillain, because in our minds, Herod is most likely a fairly flat character, evil incarnate, the devil himself, and that's that. 
And on top of that, Matthew doesn't really seem to do us any favors. There's absolutely no character development when it comes to Herod, like zero personality. So what we're left with is a picture of a hunched, decadent monarch, dressed in jewels, power-hungry, and willing to go to any and all lengths to wipe out even the slightest threat to his position, even if it means killing innocent babies. We love to hate Herod. And of course we do. He is the villain of this story, and by all historical accounts, he was an evil man, but he was also so much more. And I'm not here this morning to toot Herod's horn, but I don't think we do ourselves any favors by just glossing over who Herod actually was. Matthew places King Herod as a key player in the story of Jesus' birth because this story is the origin story of a new king and a new kingdom. And the person of Herod stood in sharp contrast to everything that Christ's new kingdom was about. In the study of color theory, which I studied in art school, there's a concept called simultaneous contrast. It's the idea that if you put two color opposites next to each other, they simultaneously define each other more fully. So in the case of black placed next to white, Black makes the white look even whiter, while simultaneously the white makes the black look even blacker. And so Matthew's account of the birth of Christ isn't just the story of a baby Jesus and the wise men and Joseph and Mary outsmarting an evil idiot. This is the tale of two kingdoms in simultaneous contrast. On the one side, Herod and the kingdom of empire, and on the other side, Jesus and the kingdom of peace. And Matthew carefully crafts his gospel with this in mind. Matthew chapter 1 begins with the genealogy of Christ, the royal lineage from Abraham to David to Jesus, a lineage rooted in the entire story of God's intervention on behalf of humanity and immersed in Jewish history. You see, Matthew's gospel was written for the Jews. They were his target audience. And it's believed that the primary reason Matthew's account differs slightly from the other Gospels is because it's the story of Jesus tweaked to resonate in the Jewish mind. Jesus and his kingdom of Shalom. And by contrast, it's also the story of Herod and his kingdom of empire. You see, Jews in the first century would have understood very intimately who Herod was. And so we see Matthew start the second chapter of his Gospel like this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Matthew understood that on the basis of that statement alone, just with those 13 words, any first century Jewish listener or reader would have realized immediately what was going on and what he, Matthew, was trying to do. They would have understood that the birth of Jesus juxtaposed against the reign of King Herod was laden with meaning. They would have known Herod intimately as the stories of his fame, decadence, building projects, and cruelty would have traveled at the speed of a first century tabloid. You see, to the ancient Jewish mind, Herod the Great needed no introduction. But we as Westerners here in 2022, removed from the stream of Jewish history, don't have that kind of access to the person of Herod, at least not right off the bat. From our point of view, Matthew seems to present Herod as a flat and one-dimensional character, but lucky for us, the ancient historian Josephus actually spent a lot of time writing about Herod, 
And it's amazing how much information about his life is available if you're willing to do a little digging. So as many of us know, Herod was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews, otherwise known as the Roman client king of Judea, the strip of land sandwiched between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. But maybe a less known fact is he's widely considered to be the richest man to ever walk the planet. Some people disagree and think this title belongs to King Solomon. And while it's disputed slightly, many historians believe that when all is said and done, accounting for inflation and the economic situation of the day, Herod the Great actually comes first. It was said that his personal annual income was a hundred times more than the GDP of the entire country of Judea. And this confuses people because they wonder how the personal wealth of a monarch might ever surpass the total wealth of the country that they rule. Never mind surpass it by a hundred times. Well, it's because Herod was a rich kid, or the richest kid, before he even ever became king. His father, Antipater I, the Idumean, or Edomite, was from the region of Edom, which lay in the south of Judea. And it was populated by the descendants of Esau. This is Esau, the oldest twin of Isaac and Rebekah, the same Esau who sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. So King Herod was technically not Jewish. He was a very wealthy Edomite. But how did he get all that money? Well, it's a bit of a complicated story, but the simple version is that Herod's father, Antipater I, who I just mentioned, was already a very rich and powerful Edomian ruler. And then on top of that, he married Herod's mother, Queen Cyprus, an Arabian Nabataean of noble descent whose family, the Nabataeans, for 700 years held an airtight monopoly on the world's spice trade. They controlled all of the spice routes from southern Saudi Arabia, Asia, and India. And these were the spice routes that supplied perfumes and spices not just to Judea, but to the entire Roman world. So Cyprus's family, the Nabataeans, were filthy rich. They were the ones who built the city of Petra. You've seen the pictures of these buildings, the, these entire structures carved into the sides of cliffs. There's even one featured in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and they use it as the entrance to the final resting place of the Holy Grail, filled with booby traps and, uh, was it that lightning-quick blade that cuts off people's heads? Anyway... Queen Queen Cyprus, Herod's mother, was the heiress of this dynasty, inheriting one of the largest family fortunes on earth. On top of that, after her marriage to Antipater, Antipater then went and came to the rescue of Julius Caesar in Alexandria in Egypt during the campaign against the rogue Roman general Pompey. Pompey was defeated, and as a reward for his help, Antipater was made chief minister of Judea by Julius Caesar himself, a title that granted Antipater full permission not only to rule Judea and all of its citizens, but also to count and tax them, which is where we see Joseph and Mary show up, going back to Bethlehem to be counted for the census. So Antipater could tax and count the citizens of Judea. He had the title of chief ruler of Judea, and he then passed this title on to his son, Herod, who, through his own clever maneuvering, upgraded 
that title to king of the Jews, thus merging his immense wealth with an unprecedented power and authority backed by the Roman Empire. So King Herod was a kind of hybrid creature, a thoroughbred rich kid, an ancient billionaire steeped in generational wealth and backed by the godlike authority of Caesar. And it seems that both Herod and Caesar understood their alliance to be a kind of necessary evil. Keep your friends close and your potential enemies closer. So in the Jewish mind of the day, Herod the Great was the embodiment of absolute wealth and absolute power. But this kind of wealth and power always comes at a cost. The world that Herod lived in, the world of empire, was permeated with betrayal, manipulation, and assassinations as each individual player vied for more influence and would happily resort to any and all levels of violence if it seemed their power and authority was being called into question. Herod's world was an ongoing game of chess, a world where to take out an opponent, wipe out potential threats, and squash rebellions was all in a day's work. And as a result, it was widely known that not only was Herod prone to resort to these kinds of violent tactics himself, he was notoriously paranoid. You see, killing the baby boys in Bethlehem ages two and under, this wasn't an uncharacteristically evil act for Herod. This wasn't going too far. This was par for the course. This was simply playing by the rules of empire. And Matthew presents the massacre of the innocents with the hope that his Jewish audience would understand that this atrocious act was actually Herod just doing what he did best. It wasn't personal. It was just business. An old king hedging his bets, solidifying his legacy and wiping out any and all potential threats to his throne. Because years before, Herod had executed his beloved wife Miriam, their two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother, all because he felt they were scheming against him. And this was the same Herod who around two years after the birth of Christ, while on his deathbed dying of some kind of massive gangrenous infection called Herod's evil, would call for the execution of a large number of prominent Judean men in order to ensure that there would be wailing and mourning throughout the city during his own funeral procession. So Matthew presents Herod to his readers with the understanding that they would have known all of this about him and understood that killing babies in Bethlehem, well, to Herod, that was just all in the day's work. Because Matthew wants us to understand that this is the shape humanity takes when it's unquestioningly molded by empire. This is the gospel of me, me, me. Humanity whittled down to almost nothing, nothing but violence, self-preservation, and paranoia. And Herod's paranoia was legendary and was even reflected in the way he went about constructing each of his 15 palaces, including the highly fortified hanging desert palace of Masada, a structure said to have been siege-proofed by its immense height and virtually limitless water supply with 12 cisterns able to collectively hold over 10 million gallons of water. It's said that each time Herod built another palace or took on another building project, including the immense rebuild-slash-renovation of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, he would intentionally pour his virtually limitless wealth into the project, sparing no expense. 
His palaces were admired, and people began to copy his unique form of interior design, which incorporated intricate floor mosaics, sometimes made of upwards of 22 million individual pieces of colored tile, depicting nearly photorealistic images of battles, wealth, and of course, empire. So Herod became a tastemaker, a champion of the arts, architecture, fine food, fine wine, and as a result, not everyone in Judea hated him. In fact, there were two distinct groups who didn't think he was all that bad. And actually, they started modeling themselves after him. They were the ones who began copying his architectural style and intricate mosaics. Two groups of Jewish people who felt that a little luxury here and there never hurt anyone. Or even if it did, well, that was a small price to pay for personal comfort and the ability to appreciate the finer things that the empire had to offer. These two groups were the Jewish order of priests, called the Sadducees, and the civilian upper and middle classes, called the Herodians. They embraced beautiful things, their homes were comfortable, and some of these houses still exist with portions of the intricate floor mosaics intact. And what we find is that while the public outer rooms of their homes were decorated with more benign geometric designs, their more private inner chambers and banquet halls were like Herod's palaces, decorated with depictions of empire. In fact, one of these existing Herodian homes, now called the Nile House, in Sepphoris in Galilee, contains an enormous mosaic depicting the glory of the Nile and Egypt. It seems that the family that owned this home was celebrating the very same empire that had enslaved their nation for over 400 years. And so Herod's own specific version of humanity shaped by empire, didn't stop with him. It was constantly trickling down into the culture of Judea, infiltrating the lives of priests and every aspect of Jewish life. Because Herod's influence and gravitational pull were immense. Everything he did had to be bigger and better than the building projects of the Roman Empire in order to send a very direct message to anyone and everyone that while he was not Caesar, he was in fact the greater man and a force to be reckoned with. And none, other, none of Herod's other building projects sends this kind of message more poignantly than the construction of the Herodium, the only one of his 15 palaces that bears his name. Of course, we've already established that Herod was notoriously paranoid and as a result wanted his palaces to be strategically elevated. He always wanted the higher ground. However, in the case of the Herodium, it seems he purposely chose a site where no higher ground existed. He chose to build a palace on top of a hill where the other surrounding hills were of exactly the same height. So in a weird act of ego, paranoia, and self portraiture, Herod proceeded to have his building crews turn that meager hill into an artificial mountain standing 2,487 feet above sea level. And once the mountain was completed, then and only then was Herod's palace finally built on top, towering above the countryside and overlooking a small town. You see the Herodium, Herod's luxury palace namesake, sat just three miles from Bethlehem. 
and towered over the small town as a looming reminder to all of the town's inhabitants that they were mere cockroaches in the presence of a god of empire. So when Matthew writes the phrase, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, this is the image he's invoking. The king of peace born in the shadow of the Herodium. This is the story of the kingdom of peace breaking into a world of violence and empire. And we're meant to feel the difference, the clash of opposites, as the simultaneous contrast of the two kingdoms works on our hearts. And hopefully as a result, we begin to feel that initial lullaby effect begin to dissipate as the story of the birth of Jesus becomes less cozy and more the epic tale of the collective future of humanity that Matthew always intended. The story of a king come to renew, reorder, and restore his creation, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, allowing his influence and his gravitational pull to remold and reshape humanity back into the original form that he had always intended. Because ultimately, this is a story about the shape of humanity, about what it means to be made in the image of God and live undiminished lives of fullness and wholeness. Lives lived without fear and paranoia, fully invested in relationships and life and sacrificial love. This is a story about what it means to be fully human. Because the kingdom of empire can't help but elevate and perpetuate a diminished form of humanity steeped in paranoia and the gospel of me. But the kingdom of peace is low to the ground, nestled in the earthiness of community, alongside animals and each other. And this is the space that we hope to inhabit, understanding that the story of Christmas and the birth of Christ has never been about the Herodian chant of me, me, me. Rather, the mantra of the kingdom of peace is us. Let us celebrate this Advent season with a renewed allegiance to the king and kingdom of peace. Understanding that even in the shadow of empire, we might embrace the fullness of our own humanity and recognize and work to restore the image of God in each other. Amen. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel That mourns in lowly exile here Until the Son of God appears Rejoice, rejoice,
Zvyklý.